97 South's Storytellers features conversations with professional songwriters and seeks to pull back the curtain on the art, craft, and career of songwriting. We'll bring you to those magical moments of creativity that have delivered the inspiring songs that make up the soundtrack of our lives. I'm Paul McGuire, and today I'm talking to Stephen Page. Born in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada in June 1970, Stephen Page is one of the foremost singer-songwriter recording artists that Canada has ever produced. In 1988, he co-founded the Bare Naked Ladies with Ed Robertson. Despite initial controversy over their name, the band quickly gained fame with their witty, often humorous lyrics. Their early hits, If I Had a Million Dollars, Enid, and Be My Yoko Ono, sprung from their first work tape, The Yellow Tape, that came out in 1989 and later featured on their debut number one album, Gordon, that came out in 92. The band's 1998 song, One Week, from the album's stunt, topped the Billboard Hot 100 and catapulted them to international recognition with the album peaking at number three on the U.S. Billboard 200 and entering the top 100 in the U.K. Several internationally successful albums followed, including Maroon, Everything to Everyone, Army, and All in Good Time. In 2009, Stephen left BNL and embarked on a solo career with his debut album, Page One, coming out in 2010, producing the top 20 hit, Indecision. Besides pop music, Stephen has contributed to theatrical scoring, notably for the Stratford Festival's production of Hamlet in 2015. Operating from his base in upstate New York, he continues to create music, including his most recent solo work, Excelsior, that came out in 2022. The idea of songwriting, I'm sure, has evolved for you as you have, and the concept of bringing an idea and making a song out of it is an interesting thing when you're like 19 or 20 or 21. Um, the fact that you had so many great ideas back then, you couldn't have known how great they were. I know you knew where they were, they were a whole lot of fun, but those songs have legs. They still sound as good today as they did the day you guys released them. I'm just wondering how you remember the songwriter that you were back in the late 80s, early 90s. Do you, do you remember how it all started for you? Sure. In a way, yes. I mean, it was a mix of things because like yeah. the beginning of the band uh, of Bare Naked Ladies was so tied into the beginning of my songwriting career. I mean, I had written songs before, you know, and there were always things like, you know, I remember very embarrassingly, I had uh, written a song like a, like a power ballad for a girl that I had a crush on when I was 14. You know, like it had a purpose. Like it was like, I was going to write this song and I thought that was going to like make her my girlfriend. And yeah. I think it just embarrassed both of us. Um, <laughs> and that was never spoken of again until right now. What was it called? Can you tell me the title? <laughs> it, I'm still embarrassed for this child who wrote this song. Um, it was called Laura's Song. It was for Laura, Laura Fletcher. It's beautiful. Yeah, it was beautiful. I, what yeah. do you mean? There's, there, this is how embarrassing way, would that be if you, you had no in, no romantic interest in this boy, and he wrote you this? Like it's just it's too much. A songwriter that I was talking to wrote a song for his wife, mm -hmm. and I was like, that's such a it's such a cheat for a songwriter because he didn't have to go to Tiffany's. He didn't have to do anything. You're just like, I wrote a song and it means a lot if you're talented. I think it's the, oh. I think it's a really honest expression. Uh, see, even for my wife, I know we've been married for a dozen years now and you know, we've been through a ton together. And I, there were songs early in our relationship that were kind of about the relationship. But like now that we are as tied together as we are and like nobody has ever known me as well as she will know me. Um, how do you write a song for that person? 
that's not like pandering or like trying to kind of like gain favor or seem fake. Like you really like it. And you also, how much do you share with the outside world yeah. of that? Because that's the most personal relationship you have. So as a 14-year-old, your boundaries are a little bit looser. But I also didn't tell anybody else except for her. I'm sure she told all her friends. But Is Laura's song recorded anywhere? No. And it's no. barely in my mind. And I, for me, it was probably very loosely based on, like, I, if I can remember it, the, the way the chords moved on the piano, probably... Um, inspired by the times I sat in front of the sheet music for Lionel Richie's Hello, <laughs> oh. which was not, you know, I was, it was not my kind of music. Like I was, too, I loved it, but I would never have said that out loud. I was, I thought it was too much okay, of a hipster Hello for that. came out when we were, you know, we were, I, like you said, we yeah. were kids yeah. and, and we didn't know about deep aching, uh, you know, and I love that song. Sure. You, if you listen to it now, a lot of people might be like, oh, that sounds, I mean, it's a brilliant song, obviously. It's but amazing. It's great. It's it is. It's perfect. <laughs> and but with that incredible guitar solo in the middle, it's really great. Like for for a long time, I think we just thought of that song as just cheese. This is what the word, yeah, yeah. And now I think I hear it. And I think you know, I don't know. I've forgiven Lionel everything. I think he's one of the greatest. But that's like that's a that's a peak piece of writing there. Well, for that to break through and across all age demographics and genres and all of that stuff is saying a lot about. Being earnest. Yes, and that's exactly what it was, was earnest. You know, the, I, the first song I remember writing at age, I don't know, five, my neighbor down the street and I decided we were going to have a popsicle stand. So we made, with my mom, we made popsicles in like the ice cube tray where you, yeah. where you poke the Love that. toothpicks in. And so we, I remember swinging on the swing sets, making up our jingle, which was we were going to use to sell our popsicles, which was, we got orange chocolate and fruit. We got orange chocolate and fruit but you see like it was a jingle and it was had served a purpose you were and then the, the next song i remember was to serve a purpose um you know to try to win a, a young woman's affection yeah and then after that i had a friend jeff pounsett that i was my best friend still one of my best friends sent from the grade four onward and he and i had come up with this band called scary movie breakfast just a two just a duo and we would um you know like we're kids when I was in high school, kids would, uh, when their parents went away for the weekend, they'd throw a big party and they'd have to be, you know, cleaning up afterwards, frantically looking for the My beer dad, cap. My dad, who grew up in Scotland, always called that an empty. He said, <laughs> hey, hey, Steve's got an empty. We're going over. <laughs> an empty. Yeah. There you go. Um, well, what we did instead was we would rent a four-track cassette recorder and buy... Fostex. Yeah. Whatever they had, Fostex yeah. or Tascam. Fostex, yeah. were the, were the, uh, that was the high-quality one for sure. <laughs> And then you'd, we'd go and get a bucket of KFC, and we would make up songs and record them and laugh. That's like that's all we did all weekend. And I'm sure my parents would come home after the weekend thinking like they're looking for the, the beer bottle caps. Yeah, and there are none because we're just we're crying, laughing, making up songs. Empty buckets of KFC. <laughs> that was it. Actually, I do remember once going into a, a beer store and ordering like I don't know, like the most ridiculous beer, like the kind that nobody orders. And, of course, they just said, do you have an ID? And I went, nope, walked out again. <laughs> that was about as far as I got at that point. <laughs> These kids want some Brador. <laughs> it was exactly like that. I was like, yeah. can I have Lowenbrow, please? <laughs> <laughs> um so I remember, you know, writing these songs and loving it. And then Jeff went off to university, so I didn't have a band anymore. I mean, whatever, he went two hours away to Queens. But to me, that seemed like the band can't exist now. Yeah. Jeff's gone two hours away. And then um, 
Ed Robertson, who I knew from school, like he was a grade below me, and he was kind of like, in my mind, he was like a, a rough and tumble kid, and I was a very soft and quiet kid. Um, so we didn't we didn't have anything in common. And he liked he I remember him always had a guitar and he had like a Rush T-shirt and Rush was far too hard for my tastes. <laughs> prog rock maniac. Yeah. Well, I remember seeing them like getting nominated for a best heavy metal band or something like that. And it's like you're like, well, there you go. It's heavy metal. Um, but uh, years later. You know, I would see him, he, like, he had a cover band in high school. I remember being a, a judge at this Battle of the Bands and seeing his band play. And they played, like, Rush and Max Webster and stuff. But then they also played, like, Talking Heads and Peter Gabriel. And I was like, oh, that's more my up my alley. Like, we have something in common. Fast forward a year or so, and we're working together at the Scarborough Board of Education Music Camp. And he walked up to me one day, playing his, his acoustic guitar, singing one of the songs that I'd written with Jeff um, in Scary Movie Breakfast. Which I never, you know, that was totally flattered and amazed. But we started singing together in harmony. And that was like mind blowing. Like the fact that we, the two of us could sing in harmony effortlessly. It's, it's such an intimate thing to do with somebody else. And, you know, back to being a teenage kid, like it's really hard, especially then, I think it was really hard for a teenage boy to articulate how things like that made them feel. Yeah. So for us, the best way we could communicate was laughing, like just. Humor was the, and was the way we kind of kept connected. At the end of that camp trip, he was on, like, bringing a busload of kids back to Scarborough afterwards and made up, if I had a million dollars, in the bus. Like, made up his part. So, if I had a million dollars, I'd buy you a house. And so, the next day, he sang this song to me that he kind of just made up off the top of his head. And so when he sang it to me, I just sang all the responses back at him. And that kind of led to like that that song didn't change that much apart from like the fluid improv nature of the banter in it that's that never, you know, was never the same. We always pledged that it would be different every time. But the structure of that song from that day, the first song we wrote together, uh, became one of the most lasting songs we could do. And we weren't thinking about you know, as to go back to your question from ages ago, we weren't thinking about the life of the song or no, how it would not. impact anybody else. We were thinking about he was thinking about entertaining some kids in a school bus, and then I was thinking about how do I make him laugh in response to his thing, and then we ended up kind of building the chorus together and harmonizing, and it kind of became the blueprint for the band. Yeah. Um, so even even if I had ideas about songwriting that were more serious or more craft based uh which is something i always had in the back of my mind i just never thought it was good enough at anything to do but um when we were doing it for a purpose that was the uh that's what made them come easily and i still feel like when there's a purpose like that and that could be anything from just i have a feeling i have to get out as a person not as a songwriter but as a person i have a uh, or a joke I want to tell, or a story I want to tell. Those are when the songs are the easiest and the best. I mean, so much to unpack there. That's, <laughs> Sorry, there was a lot of stuff. Oh, no, it's so beautiful to hear the origins of that. And the fact that it was like in this working without a net, improvisational, trying to make somebody laugh in the heat of the moment. Got to be quick. Yeah. Got to be quick and come up with it really quick. I'm thinking Smothers Brothers almost, you know, like, like how sharp and witty they were, that, that's what you guys were doing in the moment. And that became like our, 
that was our thing. So when we were when we were trying trying to get gigs, we didn't think of ourselves as a comedy group. No, I know. But we knew we th- that humor was such a big part of what we did. And there were a lot of bands that I liked that where humor was a part of what they did. Whether it was like, you know, for me at that time, a band like the Violent Femmes were my favorite band probably. And they were, I mean, the songs were serious, although there were, there were humorous or clever things in the songs. You would see them live and it would be so entertaining and kind of hilarious and also kind of dark and all these different things mixed together. And some of that came in my mind from the, the folk tradition. You know, there was a sense of like kind of yeah improvisational nature mixed with kind of with trying to get create tight harmonies and yeah. and entertaining show. And we stumbled on this group, this comedy group called Corky and the Juice Pigs. Um, and there were a couple acts that like Ed and I, when, when we were eighteen, he would just call me and say, "Okay, so and so is playing." Uh, Maestro Fresh West is playing at Western tonight, and he'd like come and pick me up in his mom's car, and we'd drive two and a half hours to Western to see Maestro Fresh West, and then get back in the car and drive home that night. Like, Excellent. It was just wherever they were playing. We're going to go yeah. see them. And uh, Corky and the Juice Pigs were one of them. He had seen them, I think, on the street at uh, Just for Laughs. Do you remember that that era as well? Because I do so clearly um, how it didn't matter if the band was Canadian or American. It, it just didn't. Meister Fresh West was the shit, and we have to go see him. Yeah, it, it he's just matter. around. Like, it was just so cool. Well, yeah. it felt for me like that time in the very late '80s was the first time that I felt like I wasn't embarrassed about Canadian artists. And that's all my own. It's my own. Yeah. Kind of provincial point of view, but there was this sense of like, even though there were Canadian acts that I loved, like I loved the Spoons. Yeah, me too. But they were like. They were outliers. I always felt like a lot of what we were getting was images in vogue. Yeah. Like that. yeah. There was stuff that, that was like a lot of the kind of mainstream Canadian stuff almost seemed like the acts knew that they were they were kind of like the Canadian version of, you know, and, you know, that's not their fault, but it is the way the record business worked yeah. in Canada. And in the late 80s, you had acts like the Cowboy Junkies and Blue Rodeo and the Skydiggers and Andrew Cash, who like very organically created a whole new way of looking at music. And I think on, on the hip-hop side, people like Maestro and, and Mishi Me were creating a whole other new perspective in music that didn't matter where they were from. But the fact that he's, like, attracting more brothers in Kennedy Station, which is where I'm from, like, he's like, hey, he's talking about where I'm from. I know those people. I go to yeah. school, that guy. You know, and that kind of thing was, like, was amazing. Um, so it was a great time. So, yeah, we, we just go see bands all the time, whether they were from the UK or Canadian bands and Cork and the Juice Pigs were this Canadian comedy troupe that just every time I'd see them, there'd be some crying, laughing moment where I just, you know, doubled over, never laughed that hard in my life. And so what we would do with every artist we'd go see, we'd just bring them a tape. We'd bring, we'd give them a tape after the show or we'd like, even if we couldn't get backstage or whatever, we'd like throw it up on the stage. Like, yeah. you know, um, we do that with the Proclaimers when they were in town. I remember once trying to give a tape to Jonathan Richmond. He was like, no, I don't take tapes. I was like, well, <laughs> all right, I tried. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, there, I think there's legal precedent now. that Now I know. Not to, yeah. Well, that's it. I used to like, we used to take all kinds of stuff. And then my, our manager said, don't do that. Yeah. Um, and uh, these weren't, by the way, copies of the famous tapes. They were pre. They were they were copies of the very first tape, which was called Buck Naked, which was just myself and Ed. Okay. Um, which is I, does occasionally surface on eBay for a good forty bucks or so. I was trying to explain the origin of uh, virality mm-hmm. to a millennial recently, and I I explained uh, your cassette tapes and how I knew people who had one. Yeah. And then we would borrow it. 
and play it and then have to give it back. And then it was like one tape that was circulating sure. within a group. And that was like viral before the internet. Yeah, we would have like, you know, that's when we, like, we had retail stores calling us because of that. And it was just a tape we sold off the stage. Um, and that kind of thing was really, <laughs> was really exciting for us. But we didn't, there was no precedent for it really. Yeah. When we talk about virality of music and also like the idea of uh, whether it's the streaming quality of music and video or whether it's about copyright stuff. Like <laughs> when I was a kid, my cousin taped Rock Lobster. Here's, you know, this is a good, a good insight into my early songwriting career. You have Rock Lobster, Wasn't That Party, and Shut Up Your Face. Three novelty hits all at the same time. But he recorded off of like 1050 Chum. With his like portable re- uh, cassette player, like a pre Walkman, yeah, that press the, the press the record that, yeah. and play buttons, and you hold the little built-in microphone up to the radio and record that song, and then he'd bring that over to my house, and I would take my little tape recorder and press and hold lay it down the speaker of his on top of the microphone of mine and record those three songs. So he recorded it off the radio onto his, and then I recorded it from his onto mine. Yeah. And then listen to it with like a one-eared earpiece it, it over and over again. So many generations from the original source yeah. material. It did and then not matter. To you through like a, a you know the toilet paper roll. Basically. Totally, exactly. And it did not matter. And that quality yeah. did not matter. But I, if I wanted it, I had to. I had, yeah. you know I would just I would do what it took to to find that. I love the fact that there aren't those kinds of obstacles anymore. That you, if you want, you want to hear it. You can find it. I mean, okay, it's not on the streaming service. It's on YouTube at least. Yeah, <laughs> whatever it is, and I think that's great. Um, so with the Juice Pig stuff, they eventually got back to us. With we'd sent this cassette to them, given them this cassette, and we'd go see them and say, "Have you listened yet?" And they said, mm, "No, not yet. We, we will." And they actually did, and they invited us to tour with them as their opening act. And so just myself and Ed Robertson, and we were nineteen piled into their van and went all across Canada back and forth doing mostly like university pubs, comedy nights, that kind of thing. Yeah. And but we learned how to put a set list together. We learned how to really like improvise what worked, what didn't work. We'd get you know, we didn't go over great all the time cuz be I was going to ask you, did you ever bomb? Oh yeah. Like yeah. there were cuz a lot of times it would be comedy night. Yeah. And it would be like three stand-ups and us and Corky and the Juice Pigs. And people, if they, if they expect you to be a comedy act and you're singing songs that aren't all like joke, 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 it's really hard to connect. Yeah. But we could at least connect with energy and ideas. And in those situations, it worked great. Um, but I, like, I remember one night playing at the uh, Privateer's Lower Deck in Halifax, which is kind of like a sailor's bar. Yeah. But I guess they had a comedy. It was a weekend. We played there. We played there every night. And... Like the audience would just talk through our whole set. And I remember one night taking a picture from the stage and I got it developed. You know, you had to wait a few weeks to get the thing developed. And I looked and not a single person in the picture is looking at the camera. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that was that was our first time where we thought, this sucks. I hate this doing is, this. This is when you're building up your professional callus. That's right. You know, like, yeah. But that's so the first song on Gordon, our first album, Hello City, is about that exact experience, being on that stage. And so early... You're writing specifically about like all these new experiences. When you're a young person, every experience is brand new. And those are – there's a song in there. Even though you're not thinking, I'm going to mine this for a song. It's like it's just on the surface. 
Yeah, so you guys sit around and, and talk about maybe what you're going to write about, and you, the old adage, write what you know. You're writing what's happening to you mm-hmm. in the moment. Yeah, and I think for the most part, even then, I don't know if I was conscious of it, but what I've realized over time is that the songs where I talk about the things I know are less good than the ones where I just talk about how I feel. Like, if I was to describe to you, like if I was to give you a little history lesson, but the history lesson was a lesson unto itself, like that, there's nothing there. The songs end up sounding like, hey, aren't I smart? Don't I know a lot of things? But you know, you can go to Wikipedia and look stuff up. Um, But as far as like, if I was to tell you a story and over the course of that story, you understand how I feel about it. That's the thing I always have to remind myself as a writer. Like when I'm stuck and I'm feeling like I'm, uh, I don't have a, like this, I've created a rhyme scheme and a rhythm that scans really awkwardly and I can't get words, I'm shoehorning words in there because I'm only thinking about structure. And I'm only thinking about the end of how do I get to the end of the story, like teach this lesson or get to the twist that I have in mind or whatever else it is when it becomes like about story construction or arc construction or about adhering to the rules I've made it becomes so much less effective than ones that just tell you if I can paint you a picture and you get a sense, like I don't have to say, hey, I feel sad. Like that's boring, but I can at least get that across through the story. That's the thing I remind myself as I'm writing it is how do I feel about this? Those are the best songs. So even back then, like we wouldn't necessarily say, hey, let's write a song about Halifax. It might just be like, you know, I'm trying to, I'm going to make this up because I don't fully remember the scene. But let's say I turned to Ed and said, you know, hello, city, you found an enemy in me or whatever. It's probably I was sitting at the guitar, came up with this little four chord pattern and just sang that over top and probably knew I was thinking about Halifax. And that was it. But I didn't think I'm going to sit down and write a song about my bad experience first time in Halifax. Even then, I knew to just follow the thing that spills out of your mouth. So this is, this is unique to you. I, I mean, maybe you would, if you were, I don't know, teaching a class or something like that for people who were trying to write a song. The songwriter world, the world where people sit in a room and have a writing session and try and come up with something, whether it's for an artist who needs something for an album or whether they're just getting together to write. That idea of coming up, we need a three-minute song. Let's keep it here. Here's the structure. That's not how you guys excel. That's not the environment in which you are at your best. You're at your best when you're just almost freestyling and inspired by stuff that's gone around you and your feelings. In a way, yes. I think, you know, over time I learned, like, you know, I've been writing all these songs with Ed Robertson for years, and then I started writing with this guy, Stephen Duffy, who's uh, an English singer-songwriter who was my favorite. Like, when I was 15, I bought his tape, Stephen Tintin Duffy, he was called, and uh, I bought his tape called The Ups and Downs, and I went to England with my school, with my, with the Scarborough School's Youth Choir, and because I, I, every time I went on a trip, I was like, I have to buy a tape. To Did you have a to. kick-ass voice back then? I didn't think so. I just yeah. loved to sing. And okay. I don't, like, I, I rarely got, like, solos. But, um, you know, if you ever look at, like, any, like, snapshots of me in the choirs, like, 100 kids, and I'm going for it. Because I just loved <laughs> yeah. it. I just loved the way it made me feel. And I loved yeah. not just me singing by myself, but me, like, that thing where you're singing okay. with all these other people. And, like, I wasn't a sports kid. By any means. So I was never on a team, like, aiming for excellence and that kind of thing. Like, I think there is great value in that for young people. And I had that in the choir. Excellent. So I remember buying his tape before this choir trip to England and listening to it through the whole thing. It became the soundtrack to that trip, which, when you're 15, 
you know, that's a monumental thing, a summer abroad. And it's, for me, it was my first girlfriend going out with her and then getting dumped by her and all Did you write her stuff. a song? Well, I mean, some people would say that Enid might have been for her, um, although I always denied it. So I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that wasn't her name, although right. it may have been – I may have used her name in an original iteration of that song that has never seen the light of day. Copy that. So embarrassing. I was like, this is 40 years ago, and I'm still embarrassed for myself. You shouldn't be. These I know. The, I, and, and honestly, the people that you wrote these about, whether in anger or, or frustration or desperation, are honored by, the, you know, they're, they're immortalized. I feel like I've been talking about the wrong things in therapy, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I got some stuff to talk about this week. <laughs> um, so, no, yeah, back to England, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, this album. By I, the way, it, kudos to the Scarborough and the TDSB and all that yeah. stuff for sending you guys over there. That's great. Oh, it's amazing. Like so between, between the music camp and the choir, like that, it was it absolutely were not only responsible for my career and Ed Robertson's career and lots of like tons of other people who became musicians, um, both, uh, professionally and, or continue as amateurs now. Like it's just, it was such a huge thing. I'm such a big booster of, of, um, music in the schools. Not so because cute. I agree. They always like, it always bugs me when they say stuff like, well, it's great for getting a, you know, helping with math and science. I'm like, I don't care. I'm not a mathematician or a scientist. I'm a musician. It helped with my music. Yeah. Like, that's a job, and it's done, it, does, it can support a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I can get passionate about that sometimes because I always no, think no, like. I'm, I'm with you on that. There's, <laughs> there, are, there are examples going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to the cities that put money into arts are cities that people want to move to and be adjacent to and all of that. And it ends up being a, a financial windfall for everybody involved as well. So the arts are incredibly important. Well, and we look at in Canada when we have, um, I mean, I love the fact that athletics and particularly hockey are such a big part of our culture. It's a really, it's a great way of knitting together communities and creating a sense of identity for Canada. But if you were to take together all the professional athletes who are product of the Canadian public school system, and added up their gross income and compared it to all the musicians who are products of the Canadian school system. I'm going to tell, I'm going to bet you anything that the musicians will, will contribute more to Canada's GDP. Yeah. That's just my, that's just a guess, but I, I think you're probably, well, we got, we got you guys, we got Shania. <laughs> well, exactly. You just Brian put, Adams, if you just have Rush. Shania, Drake and the weekend in and there, Drake you're the covered. Weekend, right? Yeah. Even, even in the last, you're right. 10, 15 years. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I get, I just think. Bieber? Bieber. Sure. Why not? I think, you know, I, there's so many, and I just think that that's like, why can't we just encourage people to be musicians as well as like, you know, yes, that's something you can carry with you as a hobby and it's just part of your life, but you can also encourage people to do that for a job. Yeah. Or be uh, in the support, you know, in the music business or be a songwriter, you know, behind the scenes. Well, did we finish the English no, thing? No, no I'm going to, uh, so let me no, finish No, 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 let's do that. It's my fault. No, it's fine. Um, after this trip, I wrote to Stephen Duffy a fan letter and said... You know, this was the album of my first relationship and of my trip and whatever else. And I went, I don't know. I wrote him this letter and he wrote me back. Like, this is pre-internet. How, why did he write me back? I have, I have asked him since and he says he doesn't quite know. Like, he just, he feels that he knew that we had, that there was some connection there. And that's a weird thing when it's not like, I think somebody, sometimes when you have a potential for a romantic partner, you can feel a connection that you want to pursue. But when it's not, it's like somebody who is a kid and you just like maybe you see yourself in him or I don't know what it was, but he we ended up writing back and forth over the That's years. So nice, crazy. And then as I started making music, I would send it to him, and he, and he was really supportive of it. 
then when Gordon, the first album came out, and it was huge, um, in Canada at least, and he came to a show in New York City at the bottom line. We were playing there and he showed up at Soundcheck. And I had met him like once before in person, which was also crazy. Like he was yeah. with his band in England and I went to Cambridge for a summer session and wrote him and said, hey, can we get together? And he said, sure, I'm, I'm rehearsing with my band in the countryside. Um, why don't you call me when you get there? And I called him and like oh, took oh. the train out to the countryside and sat with his band the Lilac Time while they rehearsed for a, a concert. Like, who would do that? Yeah. But he did. Yeah. Anyways, came to New York and said, do you want to write some songs together? And I said, absolutely. And he came up to Toronto and what was supposed to be two weeks ended up being six weeks. And we wrote a bunch of songs that ended up on the next couple of Naked Ladies records and, you know, are still this many years later, super close friends and have made a bunch of records together, making them in the process of making one now. So what a lovely thing for, yeah. for somebody to do, right? Like just to realize that there's, um, and uh, we'll go back to the term earnest and earnestness in mm -hmm. what the energy you were putting out there and honesty in what you were doing. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, you know, I got, I could go be, yeah, I could go to the pub with my friends or I'm going to spend some time with this kid from Canada. I know it's still, I still, it do, still totally doesn't, doesn't compute for me. <laughs> um, you know, there would whatever, it'd just be like whenever I was over in the UK and he'd be like hanging out with some very famous people or whatever. And he'd be like, oh yeah, come, come hang out with us. And I'd be like, what am I doing here? But we wrote some songs I'm super proud of. And we still, you know, really enjoy writing together. And that's still a thing, you know, I'm in my fifties and I still wonder like, what does he see in what I'm doing here? But then I take the stuff home and I listen and think, oh, there actually, yes, there's merit to what I've contributed here. But that's just my own problem. Um, but we wrote together stuff like Jane and Alternative Girlfriend, later Call and Answer. And, um, and what he taught me was to have the discipline, to let myself be, to admit to myself that I was an artist and that the artist life doesn't have to exclude other people or responsibilities or anything else. Um, it doesn't have to be something that's wayward, but it does require meditation and inspiration. So that means like you, you're going to watch a movie, you're going to watch a movie and watch it with a different, it does something differently for you than it does for somebody who's not an artist first and foremost. You know, everybody has artistic inclinations, but if you're going to make uh, a choice to have that be your life, not only your primary source of income, but your way of life, then the way you consume art is different and you can, you have to take it seriously. Um, so it meant a kind of a commitment to understanding all the arts, literature and visual art and um, film and so on as a way to instruct how you write. And then when you write, when you sit down to write, yes, like he collects um, lyric fragments. He has a book of fragments that he has all has, with him at all times. Like still, song titles, ideas, whatever. Yeah, it could just yeah. be like, you know, somebody says, a, he hears a turn of phrase in a movie or a newspaper article, or he just sees a sign in the street, note it. You know, because in a different context, it means something completely different, and you might need it. Um, so that when you're sitting down and you're doing your work, and maybe you're saying, I'm going to write a song today, you kind of have fewer excuses to not finish. Like you can open up your book of fragments or you can go back to now, you can go to voice memos and you grab a bridge from somewhere that was just sitting there by itself. Or you grab a, a phrase that seems to have no context and find a way to contextualize it in your song. And all of a sudden, the doors of inspiration can open up. 
with Ed, I was writing out of necessity, often on stage, like that improvisational style. Um, it wasn't always the way we wrote, but it was a big part of it. It was the like call and return kind of thing. That's right. And yeah. we would take an idea that we might have had on stage and then refine it off stage. Um, you know, even a song like One Week, which I'm not a co-writer on, but I was a part of the the genesis of it. You know, that was based in Ed's like Ed and I would always do these freestyle raps and you know had the luxury of this amazing band who could just kind of predict where we were going to go together that Jim and Tyler and Kevin could just kind of like take this this journey with us and I still hear some of these improvs because we recorded so many of the shows that still kind of blow my mind at how funny and musical and like like how it could have gone so wrong that it went exactly, so right. and it's like wow, there's a rhyme there, or they took a left turn, and it's like it seems sounds so confident and it's and hilarious, and um, that kind of like being able to hone that. That's what one week was. He Ed, Ed was trying to write something like I was talking about earlier, trying to write something where you like had a goal in mind as to how as to what the story was and what the arc was. And I said like you know the the improv freestyle raps that we do on stage. Why don't you just do some of those and we'll edit them down? And like, but so he went home that night and like set up a little video camera and did a free, a bunch of freestyle raps into it. Like we had the structure of the, the songs that the parts that I sang, the it's been part of the song yep. was already there. Um, and then I just want to hear you say that. I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, that's it. <laughs> it's been, um, <laughs> And the listeners out there, people always – they'll tweet at me with like a Y at the beginning as if I say it's been, but it's not. Yeah. It's an I. It's been, but it's just – I understand what you're saying. There is a little really? bit of a pitch scoop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it is funny because it, was, it wasn't always like that. There wasn't always that pickup. It was originally. It's well, been – It's also – there aren't that many songs that start – with a lyric, usually there's a downbeat and there's a little musical intro. And yeah. You're like, yeah, it's been boom right away, right? I know. I, I can't remember what song it made me think that that was like the right way to start the song, but I just had this feeling like it was like I wanted a little bit of maybe some of it as a singer is like a little bit of hi, it's me before the song starts. <laughs> yeah, but I, I love the fact that you hear. I've heard the guy, the one of the the writer from. Smash Mouth say that the somebody was was taken from the it's been really yeah at the root of I, I know your songwriting has evolved so much it, incredible that I mean you must be you still shake your head at the fact that so many of the ideas that you guys had as such young guys um, working again without a net have stuck around so much and sound as good today as they did when they were recorded all of that stuff but your your songwriting has evolved that you you you've created scores and soundtracks and um, in the world of theater and gained knowledge and wisdom and hindsight and objectivity on the things that really hit, which, you know, some of them are happy accidents and some of them are, you know, sniper shots right. that you intended to do. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think your approach to songwriting has changed? I know the ideas of, of things that you want to get out there. I, I'm assuming like we all grow up. Sure. We all, you know, the idea of romance is maybe a little bit different when you've been married for 20 years. Of course. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm with you on that. So, I mean, a love song might not be as enticing to write. Well, I mean, it, to me, that's like a challenge. That I would love to be able to, like, if I could pull one off that really yeah. felt right to me and didn't feel cynical or didn't feel like it pulled punches or didn't feel self-deprecating. Because for me, that would be my go-to. Right. Um, you know, that, like, I love a song, like a song like Marie by... Uh, by Randy Newman is like one of the greatest, but it's self-deprecating. It's a, you know, it's like, it's like, 
those songs that kind of say, you deserve better than me, which is like, that's, that's a, that would be an easy crutch for me. It's so easy for you to pick. Uh, sorry, sorry. So you, interesting that you pick Randy Newman as well, because there's a guy who, his, so much of his music has been used in the visual medium. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and it's funny because his voice is so distinctive. God, that it's man. like, you know, and, uh, you know, um, I think that's the kind of the, the shtick about having the, his voice in the everything everywhere all at once. You know, it's like it's, it's kind of a joke of like, here, well, now here's the part where Randy Newman tells us how to feel. Yeah. Um, right. And, and it, so it serves so many purposes having there because it's both it's both sincere, but also cynical. It's both like it, it's, it's everything all at once. It, you're that. right. It's meta. It's it's yeah. it's yeah, it's everything. Um that's interesting. Uh, but I think for, for me, the biggest difference for, with writing now, I mean, part of it, like, you do get some level of confidence when you have hits and stuff. And the thing yeah. is, like a song, I'll go back to Million Dollars. I mean, it's the first song we wrote together. I was 18 when we wrote Unbelievable. that. Unbelievable. And I think in general, there, it is even more difficult now in the time we're in uh, with the fragmentation of whether that's genres or what the top 40 means or how people discover music, but it's a, it's a real roll of the dice. It's not like it was when I was in my 20s and 30s and a lot of times it would be this kind of sense of like this. There was We talked about the virality, word of mouth, but it was often supported by things like in Canada be much music and the CBC – and, YTV? Well, exactly. YTV was, was a big thing for us. Had to, sorry. Well, we got our, we got our, uh, our uh, YTV. The YTV Achievement Awards. Achievement Awards was one yeah, of our, there. it might have been our first time on TV. Yeah. Um, so that was like, you know, those, those are big things for us. And people watched them. So they became part of the culture. Um, so for a song like Million Dollars to, like, I remember on the Gordon tour, uh we had to cancel a show in Charlottetown because I got sick. I got like uh, tonsillitis, okay. which was you know can be dangerous when you're an adult. So they had me on all kinds of fluids and stuff. But I was I still I smoked cigarettes back then. So I was oh, you like, mean it can be life threatening? Yeah, because you can oh, like, you, you know it can burst your, your tonsil can burst and you can have like sepsis or whatever. Oh wow, okay. Um, so there were you know, and I remember there was like newspapers came by the hospital and stuff to take pictures of me because people didn't they thought I just I just didn't feel like doing the show. That's like Oasis playing without Liam. That's right. And they're like, yeah. well, they're like, they're, they're like, oh, they don't want to, they canceled the show just because they didn't feel like doing it. Yeah. And it's like, he was hungover. Yeah. Well, there was that. I probably was hungover too at that point. <laughs> but I'm thinking, like, is there anything else I want to do other than do concerts? Like, at that point, there was like, I didn't, there's nothing else greater than that. Like, why would I cancel one? So, anyways, they had to take pictures of me for this stuff. I remember going downstairs for a smoke, and there's this older lady there, and she would say, oh, I hear you're a musician. I said, yeah, that's right. And she said, oh, um, you're, in, you're in a band? And I said, that's right. Yes, I am. She goes, oh, does your band do uh, Achy Breaky Heart? I said, no, no, we don't. Hmm. Does your band do, uh, uh, I don't know, she listed off some other kind of like pop. A Conway thing. Tritty. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I said, no. And she said, do, does your band do If I Had a Million Dollars? And I was like, yes. As a matter of fact, we do. And I realized she meant like are we, we're like a, like a wedding band. You know, our cover band. And she listed the few songs in the pop culture that she knew, and one of them was one I actually wrote. Um, like, I don't know if that happens that often anymore. Even, like, the songs that are in commercials that are kind of part of the, the zeitgeist are often songs from the 90s or the early 2000s. You know, it's, it's things like, 
like things that that are part of like I, whether I'm thinking about kind of humorous songs that people latch on to. I like to move it or something like that. Like those are things that are eight eons old now. I don't know if n- much new material can reach that kind of saturation point that we were lucky enough to be able to reach in the throughout the 90s and the early 2000s. So we got really lucky on the other side of that. So you knew that when you put a new song out back then that you had this machine. We had the machine behind us of management and publisher, record company. Yep. And we had also built – a huge um, set of relationships in radio stations all across North America. Like people knew we'd come by their station, we'd play their summer concert. We, you know, we were you but- were nice guys, good guy, yeah. And we, we were remembered. Like so, we put this work in, and it paid off. Like you know, we could come by and do the morning show or the drive time show, and like it was people we'd been with, like when they were at a station in Toledo, and now they're at the station in Detroit, and they're in a better, bigger market, and like we can go with them on the ride. Um, and that's it because radio doesn't have the same, uh, impact and because they don't show music on TV, that doesn't have the same impact. It's, uh, it's a lot harder to have that kind of like anticipation for a band's music. So on the other side of that, I know I can write whatever I want and I don't have to worry about making like, not that I worried before, but I've, I, I limited myself quite often to a form a form that I really love, the three and a half minute pop song. Like I, that's something I think is a is a a form that's worth celebrating, and it's you know like always trying to emulate you know, the Beatles, particularly. You know, it's you know I still think the greatest, but whether that's the Beatles or it's the Bee Gees or it's the Kinks, always trying to emulate that. But to now have the liberty to do that and have a seven minute meandering thing because that's what I feel. No one's going to say, well, they're not going to play this on the radio because, yeah, they're not going to play the other one on the radio either. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just playing for my audience. And then if somebody else wants to, like, somebody stumbles into the song and it gets played on something else, great. I'm more than happy. But it's not it's not the goal. And I'm, again, it's the luck that I have by having a catalog of stuff yeah. that can still kind of sustain me in a way, too. Uh drives me to keep creative and keep making stuff. I could easily just say, I'm not, I don't want to do this anymore. Because if I expected the success or the machine or whatever else that I had 20 years ago, it took me 20 years to get to get to that point where no, I, was, no, no, of course where you, I wasn't and, and, and heartbroken by its lack of success. You can't have perspective on mega success when you're 26 and no. in the middle of no, the you hurricane. Can't. You can't have that. You need, you need, you need the, what do they call it? The 3,000 foot view of it or whatever. That's right. Um, you mentioned the word jingle earlier, and there is, I, I think you would probably agree, a fine line between a jingle and a hook. Sure. Right? Um, and many great hooks have been used for jingles. I don't think it works the other way around, uh, necessarily. Right. You know? Although there are some pretty great jingles out there. There are some pretty, dude, yeah. I mean, you and I can probably hum as many old commercials. What was your, for you, Ed, whoever you were writing with, how did you know that what you were doing in the moment wasn't quote unquote cheesy. Did you guys have like a, like a litmus test for yourselves to make sure, sure that yeah yeah because we we would like we would sometimes consider some of the stuff that we did the improv stuff that was satisfying. We go well that's not a real song, and we kind right. of would talk about real songs, and um, 
You know, the, we that was sh- the terminology. Real, this is not a real song. Kind of, yeah, kind of what I would think. Okay, uh, you know, we always grappled with because we we had that humorous side to us, which was what we put out into the world first and but foremost. But you also didn't let the comedy get in the way. That's what we thought, and because the business often is very simplistic in the way that they portray stuff, whether that's the media or the record companies themselves. Um, like you know, we had we struggled, even though we were packing clubs. Uh, in Toronto and then into other cities, we struggled getting offers for record deals in Canada because they would say, "Oh, that's a con- that's a, like a it's a novelty group." They would call it a novelty group, yeah. and that's just going to be over by the time we sign this thing. And it wasn't until American labels paid attention that the Canadian labels kind of lined up. How many times have we heard that story? Yeah, and it yeah. was just the, you know, and I totally understand their budgets are limited, and uh, they don't want to look like they are. I mean, it, honestly, what we did because it was silly sometimes. I think it embarrassed some people in the business. They were like, oh, this is like, it's not, the, it's not the serious face that we want to put forward. So when it came to our, you know, we'd made that first album, which was so varied. Like for me, my, my ultimate albums are things like Sgt. Pepper's or Abbey Road. Or, I mean, the album I loved as a teenager was um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. Incredible. Which is, you know, a double album with huge hits like, Relax and two tribes and 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 still a concept album without being a concept e- album. Exactly, you've got yeah. one one side that's all covers. They do yeah. they do Born to Run and War and Do You Know the Way to San Jose and Ferry Cross the Mersey. What a weird group of covers on one side. Then you've got these big, you know, it's essentially some of it is like a Trevor Horn solo record. So it's essentially like a kind of a yes prog rock record on one yeah. side, um, and then disco stuff and. Uh, to me, that was great. It was just so varied and so eclectic, and that's what I wanted Gordon to be like. And I think it did; it succeeded. But you know, we put a goofy album cover on there, and it kind of obliterates people's potential to see it. So Would you next change to, the album cover. Oh yeah, we always hated it. We changed it. We changed it to something that was just as bad. Like Super we, Bowl, you you go back and change that. Well, we had originally it was like the the ball and all of our faces. Yeah, yeah, and it was supposed to be like so that ball was supposed to be. What, the way it was described to us was that the ball was coming through the letters at us, and we were like supposed to be warding it off and like standing <laughs> out of the way of it. And then they put the thing together, and, and, and we're like, oh, "That doesn't look good." And they're like, "Well, it's too late. The the, uh, the deadline's like tomorrow." And we're like, "But that's not what we thought we were doing." Um, and they're like, "Yeah, that's kind of how it turned out." <laughs> <laughs> and then like we were at the deadline. Well, you want re- your record to come out in July or not? Dude, I got the thumbnail imprinted in my brain forever. I'm like, you want to change that? Well, so we changed it in like the mid '90s because we were so embarrassed to an album cover. It's like it's like it's just the red, white, and blue ball Have you on seen like a album sewer covers grade. lately. By the way, they suck. Oh yeah, totally. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I I'm really proud of the one that, on my last record on Excelsior. My wife did this awesome photo collage. But of course, like when you put it into Apple Music or Spotify, you can, like and Spotify, you can't even pinch to to, <laughs> to increase the size of the album cover. Yeah, it's like so. Please come this to my website so many, and buy the vinyl. So many artists now it, for for the thumbnail, they just use a headshot. Yeah, because that's all you can kind of see, and they're like, I want to let the people know who I am. Yeah, I don't. I don't need people to see my face anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't need to let people see. Your I face guess not. Now. That's the beauty of. I know that is a funny thing. People are like. Yeah. I just did a, a trip abroad with a bunch of Canadians and who hadn't seen me in a long time. They're like, you look like, how do you look like you did when you're in, in your 20s? I'm thinking, I'm glad they don't have a picture of me in my 20s actually with them. But for somehow I'm satisfying their sense I think what they're saying is, you look great. You still have a full head of hair as a man. And we can yes, be proud of the point. follicles that we've got. Yeah. 
I could, I could look significantly weirder. I would look every one of my 51 years if I was bald. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I might start to kind of go back to it. Yeah, you look weird. Good, but um, as far as like those, the, the jingle thing goes, like we went mm-hmm. second album, it was a much more subdued and more like serious record, but it still had a sense of humor in the song. Was Jane on the second record? Yes. Forgive me. So yeah. this, is, this is the evolution of the songwriting. That's right. Yeah. So now we're right. I was writing some stuff with Stephen Duffy, like Jane, and the other thing was the album cover was in black and white. Yeah. So we always joked we were going to call the album "Hi." We're really serious now, because um, <laughs> that's what we always grappled with was the perception <laughs> of whether we were serious or or not. That is so Monty Python. It's <laughs> incredible. Yeah, I still love the name. Hi, it's great. We're really serious now. Yeah. Because um, because that in itself is so unserious. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it kept kind of just going back and forth, like album cover to album cover, going kind of wacky to to serious, and um, the records became more and more. Um, I think we were able to integrate the humor and the seriousness in, like, we could have a, a, a whole record that just started to hang together more, and so it. They became less eclectic, but they came. Maybe they started to sound more like us as writers and as a band. Um, but I remember when we put out an album in two thousand three called "Everything to Everyone," and again, there's another album title that it's really it's about like how do can you be everything to everyone? Can you be funny? Can you be serious? Can you be? You know, it was a time of the uh, U.S. In, invasion of Iraq, and we were like, well, can we talk about? The things that we believe in, I talk about them off stage, you know, like yeah. on in the in the press or whatever. People want to know my opinion, but if I put it in a song, and then you get people saying, "Well, I didn't know you guys were communist lefties," <laughs> and uh, you know, now I'm not going to like you anymore. And we had to learn early on to be able to go, "Okay, then don't like me anymore." It was also the time of the Dixie Chicks and stuff too. I was just going to say the Dixie Chicks, yeah, yeah. And so we were always very kind of clear about that. It's funny, I still get things like that. I write, I write a song that's that's, I guess, quote-unquote political, and people will be, like, commenting on the YouTube page, I used to like this guy, now I hate him because he's too woke. And it's like, I've, <laughs> I've been as woke as I can be. I, woke is aspirational for me. So, you know... I, I, I think we've all discovered that um, the last place any of us should ever go is comments online. Um, I'm assuming you still get nothing but pleasure from your chosen profession there are lots of times when i think like you know what i'm, I'm not going to do this anymore or why am i still doing like it's really everything, everything's frustrating i'll never get it you know you do that kind of thing and um yeah there's definitely times like that but i'm having more fun than i've ever had like i um in, in you looked like you had a lot of fun i've seen you on stage a lot over the years oh yeah you looked like you had a lot of fun you're oh, really yeah. truly having more I fun always, now i always loved it but yeah. I could be, you know, I could be hard to get along with in the studio. I could be hard, really hard on myself. I still am hard on myself. I think you have to be in a certain way because you don't want to be complacent. And uh, but I, I'm surrounding myself with people I really uh, feel comfortable with and who I don't know. Maybe I accept, I'm more accepting of myself makes it a lot easier. And yeah. but but where I was getting at earlier is the fact that like because I'm okay with my life being smaller. Which you know, like, honestly took time for me to be okay with that. Like yeah. you set goals for yourself is like I should be playing this size venue. I should be selling this many copies of record. I should have this many Spotify followers, whatever. If, if I'm focused on those numbers, I'm only going to be disappointed. I'm only going to feel cheated. And I think, I think you can spend so much time think, feeling like that 
not that you're not good enough. I mean, that that alternates. There, you have. I think a lot of people have that imposter syndrome, but it's yeah. also that sense that like somehow the world is cheating you. And I think when you do that, then you close yourself off to the fact that the world is changing and moving, and you're just part of it. You know, and like. You know, I started a Patreon over the last few years, you know, just during the, the pandemic when a lot of people did. But I've been able to kind of sustain it. Like it hasn't gone down in numbers. Yeah. And I do these live streams and the people who come feel so connected to it. And they also feel connected to like my most recent record because they were paying attention while I was making it. Like they feel like it's theirs. Uh, so I can make something that's really personal and something I'm really proud of. By the way, Excelsior is a, a little bit of a different title to... I <laughs> were really serious now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excelsior is like the, the that version of that. This is a serious title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's like, and it means ever upward. So it's kind of like, it's my kind of way of going, yep, onward and upward. Hey, wh- when was the last time you wrote like a three-minute pop song? Oh, well, I mean, I'm, st- I'm in the process of writing stuff right now. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm still finishing. See, this is where we ta- I was talking about finishing a song in a day. I'm like nitpicking over lyrics right now, so I can't say the songs are finished. Okay. But like there's a three-minute pop song on Excelsior, the Golden Age of Doubling Down, that I think is like, you know, it stands with all of the, my, the stuff I like the most about what I do. Yeah. What's it about? It's about, I think, this knack that we have now, whether no matter what side of the spectrum we're on, that we kind of go, rather than allowing ourselves to stand corrected or to learn something we have to like double down on making people feel bad on correcting like <laughs> like we have to say uh that's not what i see um so if somebody makes a joke that is an innocuous joke like uh i posted a picture of a tuna sandwich the other day that was that was um where the the meat in the tuna was like dark brown uh, it was from a german like an airport in germany and i was like what are these germans trying to do to me and someone's like I don't see anything wrong with that. It looks delicious to me. It's like, what are you talking about? It does not look delicious. It looks horrifying. This is like, I'll have the dark meat tuna, please. But they're like, I, I can't even post that without somebody like some reply guy telling me that I'm wrong. Um, you brought a lot of pleasure to a lot of people, <laughs> including me, man. Your, your joy is infectious and uh, can't thank you enough for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for listening. This has been Storytellers. Join us this summer on the shores of Lake Okanagan, beautiful Penticton, British Columbia, with Triumph's Rick Emmett, Nashville hitmakers Jamie O'Neill, Lee Thomas Miller, Wendell Mobley, 97 South Song Sessions veteran Tim Nichols, and the one and only Paul Brandt. For an experience you'll remember always. The 97 South Song Sessions Songwriters Festival is happening this July, the 20th to the 22nd, in Penticton, British Columbia's incomparable wine country. An intimate, bluebird-style music performance that features songwriters in the round, playing their hits and relating stories of a life in music. Tickets and information at 97southsongsessions.com. Download the free Stingray Music mobile app and listen to the 97 South Song Sessions channel today. Stingray Music. Life's on you. Music's on us.